Welcome to another episode of the More Love podcast with Helen Reynolds. The place for conversations that reveal your greatest strength is in your sensitivity to love energy. I'm delighted to be sharing this episode with Michael Rhodes. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Helen. I'm delighted to be here. I could introduce you simply as a modern day spiritual mystic. I mentioned that you've got an international audience, run online programs, have written 23 books with another on the way, and have even had people write books about you and how you've had a positive impact on their lives. I'm sure I could ask just one question and you'd talk for an hour and the podcast would be done. But I'd really love to have your story or have these insights that you can share with us come out through your life story. It always, stories help to connect us and um, see the sameness between people because it seems that the world is so focused on differences or, or making it seem like we're all so different when there is a unity that holds us all together. So it's my understanding that your spiritual journey began when you were a dairy farmer in Tasmania. I'm not sure if there is a beginning to a spiritual journey. I mean, well, it, goes back, true. it goes back many lifetimes, but that was when the, the, um, it reignited in this life. Yeah, I was, uh, I was in Tasmania. My father died when I was about 24. And when I was 26, because of family circumstances, I emigrated with my late wife, Trini, and two children. And so I was 26 and I arrived in Tasmania, didn't know anybody. And, uh, and I was all set to become a beef farmer. And I knew nothing about that whatsoever. I, my, in, in England, my father was a grain farmer. And so that's what I'd done. So beef farming, it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, the, uh, ad, the advertising of it showed a man driving around with his beef herd he got a nice Land Rover and uh, he smoked Marlboro cigarettes and it all looked pretty good. Anyway, it didn't work out quite like that. And so I landed in Tasmania and this is an important piece behind it because of the pressure. Um, I landed in Tasmania and it was the beginning of the worst decade of farming in Tasmania in the 20th century, literally. I'm not just saying that, it really was bad. And so when I arrived, I bought a beef farm on the hills of, of Mount Arthur, up in the northeast of Tasmania, and uh, clearly knew nothing what I was doing. But the very first year, we had a plague of caterpillars. So I bought some cattle. I had a plague of caterpillars came in, and I had no idea. I mean, it started off on the, on the fields. You could see like little bits of gray cotton thread. But these little bits of gray cotton thread weren't gray cotton thread. They were baby caterpillars. And they grew and grew till about the size of your, your finger, a little finger. And uh, they devoured everything. And they, they were there in the millions upon millions of them. And so they, it wasn't just my farm, it was farms around but they ate everything. So it's like a silent swarm of locusts, except they didn't come in and go. They just kept eating. And eventually I had water holes. They were filled with caterpillars. Oh, I mean, wow. it's hard to imagine. 
the caterpillars filled it up and they're so full that other caterpillars walked over the top of quite large water holes. That's a serious lot of caterpillars. And, uh, and so anyway, I lost my herd. All the cattle died. I had to walk around shooting them, they died. And, um, and so I had for economic survival, I had to become a dairy farmer because as the caterpillars disappeared, something unique happened that the farmers and the agricultural world went into a recession while in the cities, it was booming. And so you had this double cut thrust and it was, and that lasted three more years. No, I got that the wrong way around. First, there was a drought when the caterpillars had finished. That lasted three years. And then came in the straight in the, as the drought coming to an end, the recession came. It was like punch after punch after punch. And so I was, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't believe what I'd walked into. And so one morning about 5.30, I came out of the house and on my way across to the dairy to do the milking. And I had a roundabout that I'd made for the kids. There were four now. And so the, uh, I jumped on it this particular morning and spun round. And I thought to myself, these thoughts came that I'd never had before. So what am I doing with my life? And I, I didn't know. And then I thought, so I'm round and round on the merry-go-round, except it's not terribly merry. I was happy enough. I had a wonderful marriage. So I was happy enough. But uh, nothing that I'd planned was happening. I mean, everything was, I'm just being forced into situations. And then I thought, so is this the rest of my life? And no answers. And then, uh, so where am I heading with this? And there's no answers. And, uh, and then out of the blue came a question that hit me in the solar plexus like a steam train. And it was suddenly... I'd, uh, before that, I'd been thinking, so what do I do? Live my life. I'm being pressured into doing things. And I lay in my coffin and one day and I say to myself, so what was that all about? And then out of the blue came this question, who am I? And it hit me so hard, I almost doubled over. It hit me so hard and I was completely shocked because I knew it wasn't who am I and my name and what I am biologically but I'd never even had a thought of such a question. And I went back in and I said to Trini, I said, she said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I just had this question, whack me one, who am I? And she said, that's funny, I've been asking myself the same thing lately. I said, well, I wanna know and I wanna know now. But that took another 15 years and took me out of farming. But that's the incident to which you're referring, yeah. That changed my life. That began the deep internal quest. It did indeed. I've got lots of questions for you, of course, but I'd really like to share something that it, it's, these are your words from your website, but I'd just love to share them at the beginning of our conversation because they really frame the understanding that you have now and, and, and it'll give context for everything that you say from in our conversation. So in your words... We are beings of love. It is love that connects all of life on earth and beyond. Love is the prime factor of life. Love is the reason for our being here. The reason we incarnate over and over, all to connect with and powerfully experience 
unconditional love. This, combined with emotional balance, completes our state of inner freedom. That's correct. So beautiful. I wrote it because that's what I experienced. And um, you, I mean, you, you can make an intellectual statement like that, but somehow it bounces off the brain. When it comes from the heart, it sort of moves into the open hearts, not closed ones, but it moves. So this, for me, says you have an open heart, but more love. I mean, wow. When I saw you doing that, I thought, this is a courageous person because today love is so misrepresented and so misunderstood. I'd really love to hear you speak about the journey from the head to the heart. You know, often for many, the spiritual journey or the journey of self-discovery perhaps as differentiated from a spiritual journey ever so slightly uh, starts with a, with a, you know, with the mind's inquiry into answers about our personality or the way we do things or our traits and I personally found I could go so far with that inquiry but eventually I had to calm the mind and drop into the heart space. Now my journey didn't begin in a journey from the from the brain to the heart because I was born right brain dominant. I was just one of that small percentage I was born very right brain dominant, not slightly very. And to me, I hardly knew what people were talking about. <laughs> I just didn't get it. So they sent me to a private school because I, um, I doubt they realised I was pretty hopeless. I was seen, therefore, as a dunce and a, and a bit on the slow side because my mother and father were left brain dominant. My brother was super left brain dominant. And suddenly they get a cuckoo in the nest, <laughs> right brain dominant. And the brain dominance is huge, particularly in marriages. You get a left brain dominant and a right brain dominant and they get married. Somewhere along the line, they're going to be very challenged because they're moving in different directions. And whereas in the early days, sex and, um, and, from, and newness can handle all that, 20 years down, that's no longer the dominant factor. And you get these two people moving apart. Carolyn was one of those people moved out because she is also right brain and heart. Right brain and heart go together. Left brain and head go together. And so the uh, I uh, went to school and at school, I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. I just didn't get it. And not only that, I wasn't interested. Mm. And of course, I was there from um, five to 14, and I left school at 14. And I was probably in a class of about 25. I never rose higher than about 23. Uh, from the, I was way down the bottom. And so everybody told me I was a dunce. They hauled me out of school the first opportunity, which suited me, and I worked for my father. But something interesting happened. After I had uh, emigrated, when my oldest son was about 12, I took him to a speed reading course. Now, farming agriculture was a struggle and I didn't have money to spend on me. But he was clearly a bright kid, left brain dominant. And so let's get him speed reading for school. And so I took him and the guy came out and he said, why don't you come in with him? And I said, well, I can't afford two of us. And this was in Tasmania. And he said, okay, he said, well, 
how, what could you teach me? With my self-worth, I said, I doubt that I could teach you anything. And he said, how about self-sufficiency? I said, you're on, I can teach you that. And so he and I became very, very close. He was, he was a wonderful catalyst in my life. But I did the speed reading course. And in the, at the end of it, when we were all tested, you see, I devoured books all my life. I started reading books in bed with a torch. And I, I devoured books all my, all my, and I was about 35, somewhere around that, same, same around the same time as Who Am I? And um, uh, a bit later, maybe, probably a bit later, I was probably about 40. No, I was in Darwin at 40, so somewhere in my 30s. <laughs> and uh, and um, so we had to do this test. So what you were given was an essay, and you had one minute to read it, and uh, speed read it, of course, and then there was 100 questions. Wow. And so the, the first one, I, speed, I did the speed reading and, and answered the questions, and I got 91 of them right. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to thrash me. Well, nobody got more than um, most people didn't get within 20 of me. You know, most of them were in the 60s and 70s. Duncan, my son, was the closest. And he was 12 and he was the next closest. And, uh, and then they accused me of cheating. And I sort of looked at the teacher, Buck, as he was, I said, cheating, how could I do that? How, how is it possible I could cheat? He said, well, you haven't. He said, I know you. But he said, do you mind doing it again? Because he said, these people are going to, these people were about 11 other people, all teachers. I said, they're going to, he said, they're going to learn a hard lesson. And I said, okay. So I said, I think I can improve on it second time round. So I'm given a different essay and I read that and then the questions and I got 93 the next time. And um, the others dropped back one or two. And uh and they really had egg on their faces because I looked like I just climbed out of a wrestling ring. And we do, we do judge a book by its cover. Mm. You know, that's really what happens. But for me, several things took place. When I was doing the course, he got me, got everybody, gave us all a copy of um, Maxwell Maltz's book, Psycho-Cybernetics. Mm, I don't know it. It's a fairly old one now, obviously. Psycho-cybernetics, obviously an American, because they come up with these words. And basically, it, he was saying, we live in boxes of belief. And so he was a plastic surgeon. And so somebody say, my nose is crooked, it's ruining my life. And they'd go to him for him to straighten their nose out so that they could live happily again. Yep. And he was them it's nothing to do with your nose you simply blame your nose and he got he was very very ethical in the end he wrote the book and every client he would get them to read the book before he would operate and of course now it's gone crazy but anyway that was at the very beginning of all this and so when I read it I realized I read it speed read it then I read it normal speed then I read it, speed read it again, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm one of these people. I'm in a box. And it's not to do with my nose. It's to do with my beliefs. And because I left school very young, at 14, and bottom of the class, I have this belief. And so 
I began to destroy those beliefs. I began to take them apart. Now, in a way, this was my journey from brain to um, heart because I had a belief and the beliefs are in the brain and they're left brain beliefs. Mm. And uh, believe it or not, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's nice when it's English because when I do that in in Germany, they don't get it. or French, or Japanese. Anyway, and so Buck and I, the teacher, remained very good friends. And I was aware of myself going through an amazing transformation. And then one day, I suddenly had this vast insight because I've always worked from intuition. Mm. I've always trusted my intuition. My pineal is, is as big as that. Instead of the modern-day pineal, the size of a grain of rice, mm. And so my pineal is active, and my intuition told me one day that intelligence, there is no such thing as a defined level of intelligence. Mm. IQ quotients are completely false. Mm. Intelligence and consciousness are connected, and you can use as much intelligence as you wish. It's all there. And, um, and, and while I just kept going through transformation after transformation, after transformation until I became spiritually enlightened. That was a good one in itself. <laughs> and yet the journey didn't end because that everybody thinks if you're spiritually enlightened, you have love. Spiritual enlightenment, um, I often refer to it as you've left, you've finished with kindergarten. You've done kindergarten, where everybody pulls your hair and sticks their finger in your eye and you go and kick them and all that, that sort of stuff that they do in the governments, that's finished. All our politicians are basically kindergarten kids, the whole lot. The world leaders, they're still in kindergarten. And I mean that sincerely. They're still in kindergarten. And then I went, I had two years, and I sat on what I call the plateau of enlightened complacency. What does that mean? I sat there... That Well, you sit there and you think, I'm there. I'm, it's it. Because all the cartoons and everything refers to it as it. And there's, it's a very nice high-level plateau. There's not many people there. But you look at them and they're boring. And they're just staring in space. And they're just boring. And they're not all very um, healthy. And so if you're smart, you come down. You go back down the mountain again where the humanity is. And you look around and then you find a junior school and you think, aha, I've left kindergarten. So now I will enroll myself into junior school. There are seven um, grades in junior school. When you get when you get right through junior school, you leave this planet. You're no longer in this frame of reality. And I've sort of been noting and I consider I'm in fifth grade junior. I'm not sure whether I'll reach seventh grade or not. Maybe over the next few years, yes. I plan to live a long time. And so um, and so then I got back into life and I did realize that I still did not know what love really is. Mm. And when my wife died in 2006, uh, my late wife, it was a, you know, I, here I am, I know the spiritual path. I have a huge amount of spiritual knowledge. And you probably, if you've read any of my books, you know the other side of that story. 
I had a, a vast knowledge, spiritual knowledge that I didn't quite understand where it came from. And I was fine with that. But anyway, when she died, I would be getting emails saying, uh, first, a paragraph about her, because she was very loved. And then the next two paragraphs about me. And I realized a lot of people love me. It's been a very humbling thing over 30 years, realizing, you know, I think I'm, a, I'm not quite sure what I think of myself. Apart from the fact I love me, but I don't know how I think about me sometimes. But I'm, I'm sort of loved by a lot of people. And that's very, 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 very humbling. And I cried a lot because these people clearly loved me. They cared about me. And I wasn't sure quite why. And I realized that I didn't have that same relationship with myself. So I'll leave you to find this, the journey in the books. But um, I found... Um, in a metaphysical experience, I found unconditional love. And I realized then this is the rest of my life. You know, what we call love is not love. There is only one type of love and it's unconditional. When we say love, it's like a word that is overused. A guy, I love my new car. And a wife, well, look at my new ring. That's beautiful. I love it. And so we use the word love which we it, it's completely wrong. I enjoy it. I'm attached to it. And what I realize is that most people, and this implies particularly in marriages, they are emotionally attached to their spouse. And we call it love. And what really hit me, I was one of those men. I'd been married for 49 years, looking forward to celebrating our golden wedding. Um, but she had other plans. Uh, an aneurysm and gone, just like that. And that's pretty devastating, out the blue, and, uh, and in America. And so what I found, what I thought was a super love, turned out, in fact, to be a very powerful emotional attachment. And so she had died, and every day we would talk. And she told me things that I didn't know. And, and, and so with her... And with Pam, I don't know whether you've come across Pam in my books, but yeah. with Pam, I began this journey into a very deeper level of love, very much deeper, a place that I didn't know existed. And finally, I connected with it. And if you want to know the ultimate paradox or conundrum, we are beings of love. We are love made manifest, but we also have to we're here to learn creation. And so we have to therefore create love for ourselves and we have to create it to know what love is, to know who we are and what we are. And so with spiritual enlightenment, there is the knowing of self, the self-realization or Christ consciousness, if you like. But I'm aware today there are a lot of enlightened men and women who have got their ticket back for another world round because they are not emotionally in balance. And the mental is the least of the problems. The mental is not really important. The powerhouse is our emotions. That is the powerhouse. And so when you have emotional balance, in other words, nothing presses your buttons, nothing. 
you just smile. It's, it's okay. And uh, I've had plenty of practice. You've only got to travel a world 30 years as a spiritual teacher. And um, I had a lot of buttons when I began. And by the time I finished, there were none. Um, but then I had that experience about a year after she'd gone. And she led me literally to it. But you still have to, the final journey is on your own. So when you're unconditionally loving yourself, what you find is you unconditionally love everybody. There's no self. The self is gone. It's all one. In other words, there is the, I think it said something in the Bible, there's the all, there's the one in all, and everybody, a lot of people feel that. And then there's the all in one, and not so many people feel that. And then the last is the all in the all. And there's very, very few people feel that. And uh, that's, in a way, the journey, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. And the one in all, the all in one, and the one in, and the all in all. And so when you get to that place, the, the buttons are pretty well smoothed out. One is still human, and I thank God often for my sense of humor. It's it still bubbles away. In fact, you've either got to look at life and cry or look at life and love. But in loving humanity, it doesn't mean, therefore, I approve of everything that everybody does. I, but I die neither approve nor disapprove. But when I'm talking of loving humanity, it's the souls we are. So I look at humanity today as probably a phenomena because we're all beings of intelligence and there's no such thing as subconscious intelligence. You can only have conscious intelligence. Here's the problem. Um, according to... Uh, Bruce Lipton, 94% of humanity lives subconsciously. There's no such thing as subconscious love. And God, the implications of that, you could begin to see since the so-called pandemic came out, the implications of that. Whereas if you're loving yourself, fear is no longer, a I, I have no relationship with fear. I've forgotten what worry feels like. I've forgotten what anxiety feels like. I don't know what stress is. They've all gone and all those things. And when they've gone, you don't miss them at all. It's like, whoa. And so, you know, I'm 85 in a couple of months and uh, I feel probably the healthiest and the most vital I've ever felt in my life. And then you realize that as you change your relationship with yourself, and you no longer regard self as a person and a body, but you regard self as a magnificent, metaphysical, multidimensional, immortal, eternal being of love, the power of creation, and light, the illumination of eternity. When that's your relationship with yourself, the whole aging process, it changes. Everything changes. Every cell in the body changes. And yet we have hospitals, we have God-given immune systems, which people are trading in for a pharmaceutical one to which they've got to use for the rest of their probably fairly short lives. And even, even biologically, all animals live seven times longer than it takes for the physical body to develop. 
seven times longer. So 720s should be 140. And nobody gets there. And if they do, they look dead anyway. And so when your relationship with yourself is based totally in love, and every day is a love affair with yourself and humanity, then everything changes. And, uh, and then you can begin to realize the potential. Now you imagine 70 years getting your business in place, getting your life in order. The kids are grown up, they're off your hands, you're 70. You've now got freedom. You've now got another 70 years to explore this, the being who you are to find that you're a magnificent, eternal being. 70 years for that. You know, we have a design, but everybody decides, okay, the kids have grown up, I've got no more purpose, and they start to die. And they believe in it. People believe in it. You know, people say to me, wow, 80, 84, you're getting old. And I look at them, what the hell are you talking about? I'm only halfway through my life. I've just reached middle age, if you want to play it that way. And, uh, and so you change your relationship with yourself, which, and your relationship with yourself is your relationship with God, and that tends to make you give away the Christian-created God, the, mm. the craziness of that, and you begin to realize there is a vastness called supreme creation. And so it changes your relationship with yourself. Everything, your health, longevity, everything is all in your relationship with yourself. And most people have a rotten relationship with themselves. And I've had so much experience of meeting people and that. And I don't judge or criticize that. I was one of them. But you can, you can move from that place. The difference between me and most people is, once I said, who am I, there was nothing else. That's all that mattered. Everything else, second place. Well, our current society doesn't foster, make it easy, create space for these kind of um, explorations. Most people said, you're mad. And, you know, it's a path for me. My path was pain and suffering. So I teach love. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say. Isn't, isn't the world set up like that? Don't we forget? Isn't the, the degree of separation part of the human experience? Well, we've got it, whether it's part of it or not. So it's, it is part of it. Whether it's by default or deliberate, no, it's not. It's not. It was. It's. It wasn't ordained that way. If you go back four hundred thousand years, we were tampered with, and we were changed, and our subconscious was made deliberately designed to become dominant. Whereas everything in nature is conscious, everything except humanity. We're not conscious. We're not conscious of being conscious. So, do you, so when you say subconscious, do you really mean absence of consciousness? No, there's no such thing as unconscious. Now, Krishnamurti used to say this, and I used to say, you're mad. And I used to say, if I hit you on the head with a brick, you will fall over and be unconscious. So please don't let me hear, read that or, and listen to it on one of the tapes. And, and then you become enlightened and you laugh and realize what a complete idiot you've been all the way through, but a delightful, wonderful idiot. And, uh, and so if I hit you on the brick or head with a brick, you will fall over. You will still be conscious, but your brain will be disconnected from it. But you will still be conscious. You will be consciousness. 
but your brain is disconnected. So how many records are there of people having an operation, being operated, completely anesthetized, who can afterwards tell every person in the theatre everything they said? Yeah, because, well, one of the most recent records of that is Anita Morjani's story. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a common one. It's a common phenomenon. Yes. Um, yes. But it's not a phenomenon simply because your brain is no longer recording it, but you're recording it in consciousness instead of in brain. And so we have been deliberately, I mean this, deliberately um, our whole education system going back to the beginning, thousand years ago, when the cabal created the Catholic Church and, and other churches sprang up from it to create separation, because yes. you were then a spiritual being. And, um, and your spirituality was your relationship, your connection with the divine. So let's separate you because we want to control you. Separate you from the divine and put a priest in. And then and let's take the Holy Trinity out of you and separate that. And so they were completely lost to us. I always think that that sort of started like even 2,000 years. Like it was really soon after Jesus' crucifixion that that process actually began. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you could definitely go back 2,000 years, maybe more. In previous podcast episodes, we've talked about the removal of the concept of reincarnation and yep. parts of that process. We don't need to go into them now. I'm just linking ideas for listeners. No, we moved away from the reality of incarnation to the concept of one life. Yeah. And, and it is one life. It just never ends. Yeah. It's a continuity. But that one life was anchored in the physical. Yeah, of course it was. And it still is. Otherwise, yeah. if you know you're eternal, you can't have fear. Yes. Just, there's just no place. I mean, I don't have a relationship with fear. It doesn't mean I don't have situations that couldn't create it. Anyway, so go back to that time when they did the created the schools, they focused on creating a situation of left brain dominance because we're designed to be whole brain. And so the whole education fed the left brain. Well, the left brain has a very powerful relationship with fear, survival, death, um, anger, and revenge or conflict. Um, right brain has no relationship with them at all. Its relationship is with love, with life, with light, um, completely and utterly. And there's no fear in the left in the right brain whatsoever so we have been the design for the situation we're in now is exactly the worst case scenario for our design but it's wonderful i mean the human template is seriously flawed it's not irredeemably so so everybody's making a choice do i move into the new or continue on another cycle more of the same and that's where we're at so i don't know if we clearly came to the correct or finish the definition of the subconscious no we haven't so there is no unconscious yeah you can't have unconsciousness because everything everything let's put it this way consciousness draws to itself physical form through which to express but the expression is consciousness so everything is physical form drawn together by consciousness 
So you can't un it. I mean, if you could unconscious one person, the world would disappear because you can't un it. The subconscious is is um, all your past is and all your emotional experiences, all your loves, everything of your past is rolled up into one subconscious experience. There is a, unfortunately, because of the time when we needed to survive the dinosaurs and, and our own ferocity, in that time, we learned there was the, like in nature today, freeze, um, freeze, uh, freeze, flight or fight syndrome. And so left brain learned to fight very well. All this, all this is in the subconscious. It's like a vast, vast program. And the deepestly, the most deeply embedded is the fear, the, the terrible moments, the emotional, um, when, when we were beaten, when we were murdered and all that. And that goes into consciousness. So every time we incarnate, consciousness once again draws to itself the physical substance through which to express. And so on a cellular level, all the pain, all the suffering, all the rage, all the anger goes into our bodies on a, on a cellular level, right into our bodies. And it's in our memory. People think memory is only mental. There's a mental memory, emotional memory. There's a cellular memory. There is soul memory. And then there is what you would call the deepest, deepest layers of subconscious memory. So much. And people are living this every day and think they're making choices. They just live. And this is 94% of the human population. And, and so this is the subconscious program that people live. And that program is dominated by fear because fear isn't real. Fear is false evidence appearing real. It's, it, there's no such thing. Like, if you like to believe in God, that God did not create fear. And although it's another subject, which I'll be doing online soon, there is no fear in nature. There's no fear. We project our fear into nature, and we project our humanness into nature, and we translate nature back into us. Mm. which is none of that, is none of those things, but that's what we do. But there's no fear in nature. It's uniquely human. And it's ridiculous because it's all based in illusion. Yeah, yeah. You know, the way we make uh, animals human in, in terms of our interpretation, particularly evident with household pets, yeah. it's the same way that we corporalize God. Is that the right, right way to use that word, corporeal? But... Um, you know, we imagine God to be made in Imperial, our image. yes. It's yeah. close enough. Ma made in our image and likeness when it's completely the other way around and it's a non-physical. Exactly. If you would like to say it, God is love and we are made in the image of love. Mm. And love is the power of creation. And so when you're loving yourself, in fact, you are recreating yourself into into. Uh, not away from the image of a human, but you're in, you're recreating your energy into something completely different, which recreates a body on an energetic level into something completely different. Mm. I'm having fun with all this experimenting. 
frivolous. The truth is you are a magnificent, metaphysical, multidimensional, immortal, eternal being of love, the power of creation and light, the, uh, the illumination of eternity. How do you improve on that? What do you take away? What do you make better? So what we do with our brains, we look at our character, our personality, and we listen to other people. Oh, this isn't good enough. And so we then focus on it to get rid of it. And it doesn't work. It's the slowest way the journey could be made possible. I did it the wrong way and the slowest way. The only thing I said was, if I'm not, haven't reached this goal by 50, I want to be dead. At 49 and three months, I was dying. And I knew that I had just two or three days. I either found the truth or I would die. I told my wife, no doctors, no nothing. I either do this myself or I die. Was I frightened? I was terrified. But I'd made a deal with a being and this was, and, and I was quite prepared to hold my end of that deal. At 50 clearly wasn't going to happen. But at 49 and three months, I was definitely dying. And, uh, and I was in a bad way. I'd been going downhill physically for nine years. And I was in a bad way. I won't go into it. But what I, it's an interesting story. Do you want me to tell it? I'd love you to tell it. Okay, just I'll go to the end of this. For nine years, I'd been going downhill with, um, I'd become an insomniac, I couldn't sleep. And when you can't sleep seriously, your whole body system begins to drop because we need sleep. We don't give nearly enough value to sleep. And so then I began to develop cellulitis. Well, cellulitis isn't fatal, but it hit me in the face, always in the left side. So it'd go into my eyes, into my nostrils, and then it would go toward my mouth. Well, because I can't breathe through my ears, when my nose is blocked, there's only the mouth left. And when your mouth swells up and your throat, then that's it. You have to have a breathing tube put in. And so a drug would stop it. So for five years, I did every homeopathic, every herbal, and then finally I was put on to drugs to stop it. And the first one tablet, gone but it would come back because I was deeply, deeply stressed um, and all the stress I created. Anyway, so I'm 49 and three months and uh, I woke and um, when I was 29, I badly injured my lower spine. And so I would have long periods. I'd very, I wouldn't be out of pain more than three to four months at a time. And then the pain would be really intense. It put me in hospital a few times, completely paralyzed with pain. And, uh, and so this, it was a rough ride from, from when I said, who am I, to 49. That was about 15 years. But it was a downhill spiral, not uphill, as I expected, downhill. And so 49 and three months, one morning I wake up. My back is bad again. I'm paralyzed with pain. My face is bloated up in the night with, with um, cellulitis. And as I woke up, it came into my awareness very strongly, I can heal myself. But unfortunately, they didn't give me any instructions, no instruction book. 
And so when Trinid was already out and she came in, she said, God, you look um, you look rough. I said, yeah, I feel rough. And I said, look, this is it. I said, 50 is not an option. I said, I just know I've reached the end. I said, so no doctors, none of my naturopathic friends. I want you to make me a promise. She's, what, she said, what's that? I said, either I heal myself or you let me die. And the shock I got when she when she she looked at me for nearly a minute, felt like a long time. Finally, she nodded. If that's what you want, I couldn't believe it. How could you let me die? But I hadn't sort of thought that bit through. And so she nodded. And I didn't realize that that is actually love. Love can, to, can let go because I couldn't have done that for her. And so the next two days were rough. Everything got worse. And then on the third day, I sort of rolled out of bed and crawled on the floor to get outside and onto the veranda. And as I crawled out, an old friend called him, a woman, one of the matriarchs who I'd had a long, long fight with and we'd finally become friends. And she looked at me and I did look rough. She said, God, you look rough. And I said, yeah, I'm healing myself. And... Uh, and at that moment, Trini came out the front door. She said, and she told me this probably a thousand times. I'd heard these exact words. And she said, Michael believes he grows through pain and suffering. And I'd always rejected it. Nobody's that stupid. And in that moment, I realized, oh, my God, I'm that stupid. And I suddenly saw my lifetime to Christian um, you're born in sin and you grow through suffering. And I suddenly saw it there and I thought, oh, my God, I didn't know. That program was still in me and still running. I was completely shocked. It was running in my life. And, and yet I didn't even know I had that program. To me, you hear the word, well, that is stupid. Sorry, but that was the program. And it was running my life. And so I crawled. Off the, off the veranda, I couldn't walk, I couldn't even get up, and into my youngest son's bedroom where he had a big mirror on the floor. And I wanted to just crawl in front of it and say, look in the mirror and say, Michael, I love you. That's what I wanted to do. And I looked in the mirror and I saw this face, um, you know, sort of a lot of whiskers, completely swollen all up this side, bright red, um, complete pain, suffering, loss, despair, fear. It was all there. All I could do was cry. I just looked at my, I couldn't say I love you. I couldn't have done. And I just cried. And, uh, and as I sat and looked at and cried, next to the mirror, it seemed to me like a doorway appeared. Mm -hmm. And I knew it wasn't real. It was like metaphysical. And I knew that if I stepped into that doorway, we're done. I'd only got to step into it metaphysically, and it was all finished. So I was terrified by deciding, okay, this is the end, so I might as well do it. And uh, I tried to step in and couldn't. And then, and you need to realize this was not an intellectual process. This was happening in the moment, and I was terrified. But it came to me, before you go, you need to let go of your children because you're attached to them. I had four children 
And one by one, I brought them up in my imagination and I let them go. It was tough. But I realized the youngest one was about 12 and they'll, they'll be okay. They don't really need me. And um, so then I tried to step through the mirror and couldn't. And um, still couldn't, couldn't, couldn't move. And so then it came to me, you need now to let go of Trini. Well, boy, that's, that was a tough one, but uh, tougher than the four children combined. But I felt that I found the place where I let go of Trini, and then I still couldn't get through the door. And it occurred to me then that I, for 15 years, I've been reading books by spiritual people. I've got a lot of spiritual knowledge, and it's useless. Here I am sitting here suffering in pain and all, there wasn't one thing that I'd read, everything, Paul Brunton, Joel Goldsmith, I met Vera Stanley Alder, everything they told me, it was useless. There was nothing there to help. And that's when I sort of had this realization, there is no path of knowledge or intellect. This is a path of the spirit, the soul. And the soul doesn't do it. But that didn't help me either. And then it came to me, you need now to let go of your desire to become enlightened or Christ consciousness or self-realized. That was easy. All it had given me was pain and suffering. Fiow! I threw that away. No problem. And I still couldn't go into the door. And I thought, God, what is going on? You know, and I'm, I'm pretty low. I'm, I'm terrified. I, it was not good. And, uh, and then it came to me, you now need to let go of God. Well, that was an interesting one because eight years previously, I'd been in the community. And in the community, I used to go into the sanctuary and meditate. And because my last incarnation, the last 20 odd years of it was in a monastery, all I did in the monastery in northern France was I used to do meditation and contemplation, the real contemplation. And meditation would sometimes be six or seven days. And, um, and so I could meditate. And so in the, my meditation, I was about three hours in it and everybody else had gone. They thought I was mad, 20 minutes and they were gone. And I was just deeply moving into the deeper levels and it felt like God withdrew from me. I was so shocked, completely shocked, uh, that I came out of it and I couldn't even talk to anybody for two or three days. I was so shocked that God had abandoned me. And I just, I, and my, emotionally, my head would say, that can't happen, but the emotionally is exactly what it felt like. And emotions always win, every time. And so... And I liked my mishmash of whatever I thought God was. I wanted it, but it had gone. So now I thought, okay, time to get my own back. I can do that. That, in fact, proved to be more difficult than the rest of it put together. To let go of God, even though the God had letting go of me, letting go of God, it's like, no, nothing in me wanted to do that. But somehow, I don't know how long it took, I dragged up and I felt I let go of God. And then I, and I still couldn't walk out of the body through that. And I could walk out my body like that. I still couldn't do it and go through the door. 
And I thought, this is ridiculous. And then it came to me, now you let go of Michael. Well, that one floored me. Michael, let go of my. I am Michael. How can I do this? And so I raged against that for a while. And I just, I hadn't a clue what to do. And I went quiet and cried some more. And something in me, I gave in. I like something surrendered at a level that had never surrendered before. It's almost like I felt a membrane inside me tearing. And all of a sudden I had this realization, there is no Michael. It's just a made up, it's just, a, it's just an illusion. There is no person, there is no Michael, there is no identity, there's nothing to let go of. And I knew it. And at that moment I got up and walked into the door easily walked straight into it. And instead of being dead, as I expected, there was this tremendous, um, like blue flame. And I just stood there. And for me, it was timeless. And if you're interested, this then hooks up with something that began earlier. And it's fascinating. I walked down my timeline. And as I walked down my timeline, I come to the place where, um, I'm standing in a field of hay and I'm 19. And I've been persecuted by a man verbally who hated the class system. And he would always talk about my family badly. And I knew nothing about my family. And I knew that I had a problem and that was rage. I had a terrible rage, I was born with it. And I was always frightened I'd kill him if I lost, if this rage came over me. Because at 19, I was very strong. I could bend six inch nails. And then he was about 40 years older than me, 30 years older. And so the sun is shining and I'm there. And a uh, 19 year old boy, this litany of spites starts up behind me as this man once again starts telling me lies, half truths, whatever about my family. And the rage was there and I couldn't stop it. And I turned round and I had a pitchfork in my hand, as he did, long times like this long. And I turned round, I took two steps toward him and pulled my arms back and I was going to smash that into him as hard as I could. And just as I was full ready to go like that, my whole body like burst into light. And I felt this incredible love sweeping all over me. And to my horror, my complete horror, I heard myself say, you'll never be able to do that to me again. Do that to me meant victimize me. But I'd never heard of the word. I'd never heard such a word. Uh, you'll never be able to do that to me again. I love you. And I, God. I couldn't, I had to, I went over the other side of the field. I, I still can see his face, the horror, as he was about to die. And so it didn't happen. And that would have put me in prison for about 25 years. And so I see that. But what happened was, just as he was, I was going to lunge forward, I, I remember this feeling of love light all over me. I reached out to Michael. I stood watching him. And I knew exactly what he was going to do. And just as he pulled back, I reached out and put my hand on his shoulder. So 19-year-old Michael could feel 49-year-old Michael, what he was going through at that moment. And so the love and light that I stood in went right through him. 
and he didn't kill that man. And then the next flash of the thing I see, um, I'm about 35 and I'm going round and round on the roundabout and I'm standing watching him. And so I start feeding questions towards him and I can see him getting more and more puzzled and gradually I open his energy and he's getting more and more open as he's taking these questions and going round and round, looking more and more puzzled. And then I'm shaping up like a round ball, the who am I question. And as he came round, I slammed it into him and he almost folded over. And then I'm back in the room and I thought, oh, my gosh. And this is what we're doing in life. So which comes first, the chicken or the egg? And the answer is consciousness. So I become enlightened, go down my timeline, change the moment of the 19-year-old so he can become the 35-year-old, change that moment so we'll ask the question, who am I, which allows me to become the enlightened 49-year-old who can go back and change the past to become the person who can go back um, this is how life is, and people think it's all linear. This is how life works. And, um, and then I was aware of myself sitting down. Cellulitis had gone, and very completely gone in one, in that 20 minutes maybe. I think it was 20 minutes I looked at my watch. It was completely gone, and I very carefully stood up because I was a bit afraid of pain. No pain. It was completely healed my back. Never had it again. And every, all my um, insomnia was gone. Everything was gone. I was completely healed. And still, still in that, there was not the unconditional love for myself. So it was a, it was a quantum leap of fair magnitude, but it um, wasn't the end. And if you read the books, Through the Eyes of Love, part one, two, and three, and then Stepping Between Realities, You'll hear the story that I'm not saying now. Fabulous. You'll read the story. That, um, that's perfect. The life, you know, we try to understand that. Spiritual and the whole spiritual journey is not an intellectual journey. Knowledge has a use by date. Knowledge can become distorted and um, it loses its caliber. But, and so is, we have a humanity addicted to intellectual knowledge, whereas I find the, the area that I love is what I call direct knowing. I think the esoteric term is mystical cognition. Mm. And so you allow knowing to come out of that moment. And when you have sufficient trust, you don't question it. You just let it come. So one of the things that we talked about a little while ago now but I said we were talking about humanity in the state that it's in currently and you said it's love creating these the world the change. the change the world situation your words were we're all already perfect we're all love love being expressed through consciousness yeah um there's a few things I'll pull together one of them, for about 20 years traveling around the world, I, I kept telling people, in the mid-2020s, we are going to hit a pandemic of dementia because humanity is completely lost in the 
subconscious and we are not evolving. We're getting clever, more and more clever, but unfortunately clever holds hands with stupid. And that is evident, obviously, today. And so I said, in fact, I was wrong. It came earlier. It came just before the middle of the, the middle 20s. And then I and, and the pandemic, yeah, it's not quite dementia, but fear is demented anyway. And so I wasn't far off there. And then the, there's two other things to time of this. One of the my teachings is in every moment of your life, you are creating the direction and content of every moment of your life. That's how it works for everybody. So we can't blame anybody for anything, even ourselves, because we are acting from total ignorance. And so when you don't know who you are, how can you know where you're going or why you're going there? And so all that comes back to what is the way out of this? Because this quagmire that humanity's in, I mean, it's just utter confusion. Everybody looks for the intellectual way. There is no intellectual way. The intellect is a tool. And a carpenter has a hammer. He can drive nails in and build a home, or he can take the same hammer and knock it down. We no longer use the intellect to um, in, in harness with intelligence. We've lost intelligence because you have to be conscious to use intelligence. And so now we're subconscious and intellectual, and that has become the norm because that's the way the schools have taught it. The universities continue it. You know, my brother is brilliant plus. He's super brilliant. At 88, his brain is incredible, but his life is a mess. Complete, total mess. Because there's no, not much intelligence in it, but there is intellectual brilliance, and it doesn't work. And we've been seeing it doesn't work, and still we come out. Anyway, I could keep going like this, you realise, for five days. Yes. This is just... Um, but uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is there has to be one way out. And thinking isn't going to do it. Emotions aren't going to do it. And so you focus on love. And now people then think love is an emotion. And so then we emote and we call that loving. So you emote over Max and I emote over Carolyn. And we say, oh, I love them so much. And in our emotions, hopefully there is love. Because the higher emotions move into love and the lower emotions move into fear. But more how spouses project lower emotions on their spouse than they do higher emotions. But it's all called love. So we've completely lost it. And so there's only one way to turn, and that is toward yourself. Now, this might be a concept for you, but for me, it's real. There is nothing outside self. When I say I am the world, I experience that. I can listen to the universe. It doesn't say, good day, Michael, how's things today? Nothing like that. But everything, everything is energy. Everything on the planet is energy. And all energy carries information. You can't have energy without information. And all information is endlessly sharing itself. It never stops. But nobody's listening. Humanity lo lost how to listen a long time ago. We hear, but we don't listen. And listening is, a, it took me five years to learn to listen. It's a real art form. 
And you don't even know what you're trying to do until you get close to it. Anyway, and so we have we have a humanity that has no idea who it is or what it is. So the only thing you can do is let's start off with the truth. And that premise is I am perfect. And so I'm going to focus on my perfection. And I'm going to focus on loving my perfection. And gradually, gradually, your feet begin to feel that love. At first, you know, it's like um, faking until you make it. In a way, you, we can laugh at that. But in a way, um, what we one of our discarded abilities is imagination. Mm. No animal on the planet has imagination, only us. But we've decided an imagination creates what isn't real. We've never been more wrong in our lives. Every sports psychologist knows that imagination is the powerhouse. And so you imagine yourself as perfect, and you imagine yourself loving yourself, and you imagine how would I treat somebody all day if I really, really love them? Would I criticize them? Most psychologists will tell you about 84% of the average person's day is spent in self-talk criticizing themselves. Everything, every other person you criticize is self because there's nothing outside self. And so once you know the truth, so no longer intellectual or conceptual, their reality, once you know you're eternal and immortal, there's an enormous sense of peace comes into you, an incredible sense of peace. It's like a vast white bubble that comes in you and you're deeply relaxed in it. It's called inner peace. It's pretty rare in humanity. And in there, there's nothing but love. You know, I do my, um, every first Sunday in the month, I do healing humanity meditation for everybody. Um, there's quite a lot of people doing them now. And in it, I'm taking them on a new journey and um, maybe you'd like to join five o'clock five Brisbane time on the first Sunday of every month. And it goes worldwide. And uh, you'll see what I mean by the journey. You'll see what I mean by that space. It sort of puts you in a, I get many people say I've never ever done meditation so powerfully. It's not really a meditation at all. It really is a journey, but people can call it what they like. And so when you find this peace, you realize at the end of it all, just say you look at a portrait of yourself and it's perfect. And you look at it and you, you, oh no, I don't like the nose. And so you reshape it. And gradually you keep changing it and changing it and changing it all through your incarnation. And then when you incarnate again, it's the picture where you left it off. And you keep changing it and changing it. Every incarnation, you do various workshops and you change it and, it, and the, this is better than, I still don't like that. And you keep tweaking it and tweaking it forever and ever. And then one day you stop and realize, I know what I'm going to do. And you get some turps and you clean off the picture and you look at it and you realize, oh my God, it was perfect before I started. And so just realize, and let's just say, um, God is love, God is perfection, God is truth, and God created in his image. Forget man, God created in his image. So let's just say God created Helen perfectly. 
And Helen gets in touch with that perfection and says, there's nothing more to do. All I've got to do is take hold of this perfection. I won't talk about it because people won't understand. But I'll take hold of my perfection and I will nurture it and I will be grateful for it and I will appreciate it and I will love it and I will respect it. And all criticism, all comparison, all judgment of me is finished completely. It's done because I know I'm perfect. That is your, that, in that moment, your seed to ascension begins to grow. Finally, which has been there with you forever, that seed to ascension begins to grow. And you just let it grow. You get your head out of the way and you just know, I was always, I've been perfect forever. And you don't tell other people because most people are not ready. That is a truth. That is a truth, what I call capital T. And uh, it doesn't have a ceiling to it, but your perfection has no ceiling where you're going to reach, but the perfection will grow for eternity. And uh, then when you can get your head around that or get your head out of the way and feel that in your heart, because this is what I'm talking to, the heart and soul that you are, from that moment, you're on a new journey and it's a journey where you relax and where you allow, you no longer try. That's left brain. Left brain tries, right brain says, heart says, soul says, we allow. And so you allow, like a little flower bud, a rose. You've only got to give it sunlight and water. Do you need to say to it, okay, now you're, you're third from the left. You need to bring that petal down a bit. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And you're exactly the same. But we look at our own buds and we forget that in the bud of innocence awaits the bloom of truth. We forget that. That's one of mine, my aphorisms. We forget that. And so we then unfold the bud in case the blue, the flower isn't good enough. And so we've held it for ages in bud. Now is the time for you to realize, oh God, this is so perfect. And the bloom will unfold, the flower will come. And people say, wow, you've changed, Helen, what did you do? And you'll be able to smile and say, absolutely nothing. <laughs> because it's all there. It's all, it, it's hard to get, the left brain can't deal with this. All eternity is in this moment of your life now. The whole of eternity. The future as far as you can go, the past as far as you go. It's all in this moment. Can you realize the immense power of that? The sheer immensity of it. Mm. It's all yours the moment you connect with it. That's how it works. I think when we um, try to in understand it intellectually, that's the moment we're left absolutely speechless. Understanding is taking the vast and, and bringing it down to a little tiny bit that you can understand. In other words, you're taking the eternity and trying to bring it down to a mental concept of your past, which is an illusion anyway. Mm. You don't have a past. You only have a now. Not many words required now. <laughs> <laughs> Except really to say thank you. I think it's a perfect 
I would like to thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'll have all the links to your book, your website, your program and your meditations on the show notes page for this episode, which can be found at livetruetoyou.com. It's been a fabulous conversation. And for those listening in, I hope this episode has revealed more of the power, truth and reality of love and given you a greater confidence that your sensitivity to love is in fact a superpower worth loving.